Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. This is part one of the 2021 Producers Choice Awards. hear four clips from four shows that weave together ideas of slavery, imperialism, and ideological and environmental pollution. Each clip is about 10 minutes long. Those shows are Slavery's Imperial Skeen, Knitting Together the Capitalist Empire with guest Zach Sell, Spreading Global Freedom or the Divine Right to Traffic Drugs, Guns, and People with guest Mark Driscoll, Revolutionary Parallels, Zhang Tayen and Anti-Imperialism with guest Biran Murti and The Poison Makers on Liberal Modernity with Robert Stoltz. Our opening song is Jaipur by Indian jazz guitarist Amancio da Silva off of the 1969 album Humdono, which features Jamaican-born saxophonist Joe Harriet. That song kicked off our June 15 show, Slavery's Imperial Scheme. In that program, we asked if the brutal practices of U.S. white settler colonial agriculture, which is to say the slave plantation, could be transplanted across Britain's colonial empire in the wake of the U.S. Civil War and black emancipation without actual enslavement. The answer troubled the rapacious imperial imaginary. Listen, that noise you'll hear in the background of this conversation is from the Brood X cicadas, or Brood 10, also known as Pharaoh cicadas. And now, part one of the 2021 Producers' Choice Awards on Interchange on WFHB. There are lots of histories of slavery, obviously lots of histories of capital. What was missing or what did you think that hadn't been told already? You know, there's so many really kind of like amazing histories of, you know, slavery, colonialism and empire, and particularly in the 19th century. But I think what motivated me to write this book is to try to think about how slavery was embedded in and really part of the global capitalist economy, and also how that embeddedness produced relations, not just within the United States, not just within the North Atlantic world, but far beyond in ways that wouldn't necessarily uh, necessarily occur to, to 
people immediately. And so I look at connections to South Asia, connections to Australia, and connections to um, the Caribbean as well. And so I really focus on the mid-19th century, which I see as an explosive era of capitalist crisis, of upheaval, of warfare. I mean, it's a period really between emancipation within the British Empire from 1833 to Black emancipation in the United States in 1863 to 1865. And it tries to address really kind of like a long-standing set of concerns in the field of slavery, capitalism, and empire studies. And that is really how slavery is so embedded within the economy and produces so many forms of meaning in a period when, on the one hand, slavery is collapsing. And on the other hand, slavery is dramatically expanding. And so, you know, in this period between 1833 and uh, the American Civil War, 1861 to 1865, um, U.S. slavery really explodes to a vastness hitherto unseen and is propelled forward by the outrush of slavery produced commodities to Britain, to continental Europe and beyond. And Britain, you know, really profited greatly from this outflow and helped finance U.S. slavery while looking toward its empire in different ways to meet the bar that U.S. slavery set. So as slavery produced commodities poured out of the United States, really U.S. slaveholders transformed their profits into slavery expansion. And U.S. slavery in this era really provided both the raw materials for Britain's explosive manufacturing growth and also inspired visions of imperial conquest. And so that's really uh, what's at the heart of the book. And it is a broad tapestry, but I think we sometimes just kind of stop with it as an institution, you know, with it as a form in terms of its effects on black Americans, uh, black uh, people in the world, not just black Americans, but black people in the world. Uh, But then we often don't really talk about the economics of slavery, Mm -hmm. you know, talk about products, talk about commodities, talk about social relations through those commodities. Uh, You know, Britain becomes a manufacturing giant. It's because it has cotton from the U.S., Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Mm -hmm. So tell about how that that becomes that way. I mean, uh, the Britain ends its slavery in a sense, but really it doesn't end its participation in slavery and white supremacy when it does this. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's really kind of at the heart of some of the contradictions that really motivated me to um, write this book. And so there is really tremendous and great scholarship on the influence that um, U.S. cotton had on the global economy. And in that work, I'd particularly highlight um, Sven Beckert's Empire of Cotton Mm -hmm. uh, as as really doing a lot of work to trace out just the many meanings of cotton in the global economy, really founded in the United States in some ways, um, and uh, really having implications far beyond, as as he demonstrates. A question and a set of questions that motivated my book is, of course, you know, cotton is such a hugely important commodity in this era that really a factory owner, a British factory owner observes at this uh, in this period at one point that kind of like any plantation that appears on the banks of the Mississippi River creates a new factory in Lancashire. And I think that's a very vivid image to kind of like capture that dynamic and growth. Another vision of this era was put forth by uh, the Black abolitionist Sarah Parker Ramond, who notes that wage laborers in Britain exist almost in virtual relation with um, enslaved people through the production of cotton um, and through kind of like the new sets of economic relations that are produced through, you know, the cotton-based industrial revolution. But with that story, you know, very much at, and that history very much at the heart of, of this era, I think it's also interesting and significant. And what I try to draw out in the book in some ways is other histories of commodities that produce relations that reveal different aspects of U.S. slavery's embeddedness within the global economy, and particularly in relation to Britain and its empire. And so I draw upon also histories of indigo cultivation um, and histories of Carolina rice cultivation 
to demonstrate that, you know, while the history of cotton is is central um, and essential to this history, um, histories of indigo and Carolina rice uh, reveal different aspects and different sets of global connections. So just to further that point a little bit, the history of Carolina rice cultivation is embedded in many ways in the United States during this era. Um, and Carolina rice is in Liverpool and um, London markets seen as kind of the most valuable commodity, um, valuable rice commodity of the era. And so British colonial officials look towards their empire um, in some ways to introduce Carolina rice. Uh, so they ship Carolina rice from the United States to uh, colonial India and seek to introduce its cultivation there. And in some ways, it's a very absurd project given kind of the numbers of varieties of rice staples already being produced in India during this era. But in other ways, I think it also reveals kind of the ways in which U.S. slavery and U.S. slavery produced commodities kind of introduce visions of what the obligations for British colonies ought to be and that commodities such as Carolina rice ought to be exported to metropolitan Britain and India ought to be meeting um, the demands of metropolitan consumption. And those histories, I think, are, are really important and contemporaneous um, with the history of U.S. cotton staples. And I think, you know, help us better understand how it's not simply the production of any given commodity um, and the consumption of any given commodity that makes U.S. slavery um, so dynamic within the global economy, but it's also the types of ways in which U.S. slavery produces imperial ways of looking at the world um, in a hierarchical way that's going to be defined by colonial occupation um, and also racial domination. Um, and I think that's really, really an essential part of the history that I try to sketch out. You know, we turn... I think generally away from Britain in our thinking when we imagine the U.S. dominance on the world stage, mm -hmm. right? And the way in which uh, slavery itself um, produced so much wealth and the U.S. becomes dominant. And we kind of like, I don't think realized the colonial or imperial dominance of Britain at the time, right? So when you talk about India, a, gi a giant country, right? With an enormous population uh, being a colony and the sort of condescension mm -hmm. and entitlement that comes mm -hmm. through in all these things is also fascinating, right? So to imagine the colony needing to support what metropolitan Britain wants. And that's fascinating. And it's fascinating how it fails, in a lot of ways too, right? I mean, that's a great part of the book also is those those particular visions of transplanting Carolina rice to India. Now, talk a little bit about why it is that anyone would, would sort of value it so highly. I mean, there's this real sense that you can't get better than Carolina rice. You can't get better than uh, U.S. cotton. This is the best stuff because it's produced by black people in the U.S., and that's part of its value also. This is like a, a question that I thought often about when working on the project and researching different chapters. And I have to say, you know, here thinking of Marx's writing on commodity fetishism was really mm. helpful to kind of like better understand that in so many ways, certain desires for commodities don't necessarily have a basis in reality itself, but nonetheless have a huge, huge uh, impact and influence. And so uh, Charles Dickens writes about Carolina Rice in this era and tries to kind of like make sense of the demand for it in metropolitan Britain. And he basically says, you know, if individuals in Britain uh, really understood what good rice was, um, they would not necessarily be demanding Carolina rice uh, in the ways that they that they were. But nonetheless, that demand persisted. And I think that that 
persistence kind of rightly goes towards what you alluded to, which is part of a way in which there's an attachment of demand to uh, U.S. slavery and slavery produced commodities is simply exemplifying quality. In the example of um, cotton, it's a little bit different in some ways because of the actual manufacturing process. So U.S. cotton staples were generally easier to work with within um, Britain's factories. And that is um, something that is revealed not only in the era of U.S. slavery, but also in the period of the Civil War when there is an increased exportation of cotton from India to Britain. And during this period, there's really, you know, um, kind of like relentless complaints amongst workers in uh, metropolitan Britain about the quality of um, Indian cotton staples. And there too, of course, there's also an element of colonial hatred and, mm. and racism that needs to be understood as well. There's just actually like poetry about uh, that Lancashire workers produce about how bad they believe Surat cottons to be. Um, and it's, it's really quite... Uh, quite remarkable in many ways. That was author Zach Sell, who joined us for our June 15 show to discuss his book, Trouble of the World, Slavery and Empire in the Age of Capital. This is Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm, and this is part one of the Producers' Choice Awards for shows that aired in 2021. For our next break, we welcome Count Basie and his orchestra. This is London Bridge is Falling Down. Stay with us. back to Interchange on WFHB. That was London Bridge is Falling Down, performed by Count Basie and his orchestra, which was used for spreading global freedom, or the divine right to traffic drugs, guns, and people, with guest Mark Driscoll, which aired on June 29th. In what follows, we begin by unpacking what Driscoll calls an ugly phrase for an ugly phenomenon, climate Caucasianism. And then we'll hear about a minstrel show put on by the historically decorated U.S. national hero, Commodore Matthew Perry, aboard the ship named the Powhatan. Not quite the Pequot of Melville's Moby Dick, but in the same spirit, one assumes. 
London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. London Bridge is falling down, my fair lady. We sang this little rhyme long ago in nursery time. Come, let's be kids again. Sing that old refrain. London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. London Bridge is falling down, my fair lady. I'm like the bridge is true, cause I'm falling just for you. I'll say it with a kiss, change a word like this. Go and get a wedding gown, wedding gown, wedding gown. Here in town we'll settle down, my valley. Obviously your, your book tries to detail the problem of climate catastrophe and the problem of what we call the Anthropocene, which is tied to that climate catastrophe. It's become a thing because we want to point to the ways in which humans have affected the natural world. But there's a way in which we now argue over you know, where this begins. Um, your particular story uh, is kind of about how climate uh, catastrophe is given uh, force and speed in the ways that, um, and particularly British and American white uh, extractors, as you say, uh, really, really sort of put the pedal down in in Japan and China. Uh, climate Caucasianism is to say Caucasians are the problem with climate catastrophe. Doug, yeah, yeah. it's an it's an ugly phrase. It's an ugly phrase <laughs> is, yeah. for an even uglier right. phenomenon. Right. The way I'm using it now in my in the book that I'm writing right now is climating white people, mm. climating white capitalists. You know, the debates around the Anthropocene have been great. Just a little bit of background. Historians in East Asia sure. say that a similar kind of phenomenon, that being looking at nature or the, or the extra human world as a resource before anything else, was also prevalent in East Asia, in East Asian studies, both in East Asia and here. I disagree with that mm. because we have, the, you could go to the scientific revolution with Bacon. Bacon was, a, he celebrated extractive engineers. That's what he, mining was going to get us there. And the way that experimenters and the scientist had to imagine himself is outside of what he was investigating. So you see that, what I call extra action, it's connection to extraction, right. right at the beginning of the scientific revolution, Doug. Then you go to the capitalist revolution, lock, you know, subdue the earth. There are obviously kind of biblical precedents for this, right. but they're all cherry picking Bacon, Francis Bacon, Locke. They're the ones that set this up where white men, educated European men, imagine themselves to be not governed by environmental forces, but governing those forces, right. manipulating them for, again, progress, development, capital accumulation. Those two, Baconian science and Lockean privatization, there's nothing comparable to them right. in East Asia, nothing. And then, okay, then you go to the Enlightenment. So you have these key moments. Obviously, you can read different things in all of those moments. But I would argue the representative um, epistemologies, and again, the scientific revolution, capitalist revolution, and the Enlightenment, all talk about white men as being not determined by the body, like everyone else is, or physical things, but being determined by other supernatural things, will, power, desire, etc. But now to jump into the present, 
We all know about the pollution deficit, right? right? That the neighborhoods where black folks live have a lot more. This is environmental racism, but much more specifically, pollution debits and credits just map onto white and non-white differentials yeah. in our world today. Yeah, no matter no matter where where you are now, you're you're a part of the climate Caucasian world. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, and then your your third term there is Asian ecological protection. You've been talking about sort of the differences between again. I think this is you know the philosophy and understanding of how one is located within nature is a part of this conversation. A part of the differences between Enlightenment thinking of white philosophers and economists, etc., uh, versus the idea of the human as a part of the world. Specifically, there's protection in there as well. So you, you clearly have some idea about how an Asian ecological perspective is protectionist of the, of the environment. This is, this is presentist, which is, again, why some historians right. are, are, have already completely rejected this stuff, which is fine. Right. Uh, I don't care about that. Um, but I did want to show the contemporary resonances with water protectors, river protectors, land protectors, this movement that's happening globally, right? Right. Not just in the U.S. And show that that was really the language that people were using on the ground to resist this. The metaphor I use is from Lovecraft Country. I don't know if you remember that. Well, white supremacy is depicted as this monstrous visitation. That's really how they saw this, Mm -hmm. that it was polluting and environmentally destructive right. at a number of different levels. So, and then the specifics of that, Doug, the U.S. invasion of Japan, the Perry invasion in 1853 mm. and 1854 was done for, for to identify coal resources. That was the main, was a secret. Right. It was never explicit. It was, it was never laid out explicitly in policy documents. It was a way for, for to increase kind of U.S. merchant marines to kill more whales, to traffic more Chinese and Japanese workers, to do all those kinds of things. But to do that, they had to have coal to power steamships done. That was the raison raison d'etre for the invasion of Japan. So Perry is dispatched to uh, uh, Japan after uh, taking care of Mexico, basically, right? And this is uh, Millard Fillmore is president at the time. So um, again, 1854. So uh, this is the year Walden was published. And, and, and of course, Thoreau is big on this, the Mexican War. Uh, you know, that's what civil disobedience is about. And at the same time, we, you know, we go from Mexico over to Japan uh, and the same, the same people, the same doing the same things. Uh, so um, the actual like story you tell about the uh, minstrel show and the sort of pomp and circumstance that happens is just unreal. And there's a playbill, you know, like there's a little playbill with all these ridiculous things on it. You would read that playbill in a Melville story. This is a Melville story itself, right? And it's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. But uh, so if you don't mind, uh, give a little bit of that. Doug, no, you put it very well. I mean, all you can say is that Perry, he he was promoted partly for shelling civilians in Veracruz. So this is shock and awe. Right. He brought that to East Asia. And again, Japan is loaded with people 
samurai class who are trained as killers. Right. So they're pretty kick-ass. Right, right. The U.S. didn't really know that. But when Perry shows up, and to, Tokyo's also the biggest city in the world at the time, Doug. It's incredibly dynamic economically. Perry shows up in Yokohama, just south of Tokyo, and he has this demonstration of howitzers. So 2,000 yards, they demonstrate where they just obliterate these peasant shacks. They didn't even bother to take, see if the people were still in the shacks. This is what he did in the, the, right outside of Yokohama. He said, if you don't do what we say in six months, we're going to do this to the largest city in the world. We're going to kill everybody in your capital and burn down everything if you don't agree to change everything or at least this trade situation we demand. So he said, I'll give you six months to think about it. And then he came back with the most technologically sophisticated fighting force that had ever been amassed. Eight warships, all steam powered, fighting force 2000 and a minstrel troop, Doug. A minstrel troop. That is important is the weapons traffickers that were on board is all the other things. The minstrel show in addition to saying that we can kill everybody if we want to, and we will, damn it, because we have done that. Right. We will easily kill all you people. Right. We'll have no compunctions about it because we are more civilized. <laughs> right. So along with that, that attitude, part right. of that attitude is to show how uncivilized everybody else is, including some of the black actors that were on the ship. But of course, most of those actors are white guys blacked up. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's the amazing thing. A minstrel show, um, you know, again to show uh, the kinds of uh, lesser beings that are your your sort of puppet puppet masters of that you carry around uh, as well, and and to say, you know, do you want to all be enslaved people also? Plus, I think one of the ships was the Powhatan. Uh, again, it's too perfect, right? That just can't make it up. No, you can't. And can't make it up. No, it's too perfect. No, that's right. Unbe- too awful. Unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. Too awful. Yeah. You can see this this again this monstrous climating regime that East Asians thought wanted to totally change everything that their world was about and to to delegitimize everything that had led up to that world. Right. Their ancestors were backward savages. Right. Their intellectual, their spiritual systems were barbaric. All these kinds of things. So they wanted to delegitimize that in the name of what? Climating Christian capitalists. Right. Right, right. It reminded me a lot of uh, any any uh, uh, Hayao Miyazaki movie I've ever watched. <laughs> right? Definitely. Yeah. There's a lot of that. Japanese New Left thought, yeah. especially environmental New Left thought from the 60s and 70s, yeah. which is where he comes from. Yeah. Definitely was involved in this. Very critical of U.S. imperialism. Yeah. That was Mark Driscoll discussing his book, The Whites Are Enemies of Heaven, Climate Caucasianism, and Asian Ecological Protection. Then I went walking, and I saw long queues, but little food. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Then I got talking, but the Let's take a break. This is Truth by the Art Bears, which played during our next 2021 Producers' Choice Award selection. One of my favorite musical discoveries as Interchange producer and host. Stay with us. 
when this was Eden, worms appeared and truth brushed them away. Back to Interchange on WFHB. We just heard Truth by the Art Bears from the 1981 album The World As It Is Today, which played during the show Revolutionary Parallels, Zhang Tien, and Anti-Imperialism, which aired on July 6 last year. Viren Murti was our guest, and during the conversation, he often just made me laugh. I mean, what else can you do when someone keeps throwing Hegel around during the conversation? In this segment, we begin with a discussion of what might be described as a positive form of nationalism, anti-imperial nationalism, specifically mobilized to fight off the ideological invasion of so-called Western powers. We talked about, you know, what it means to be nationalist. I don't think we would really talked about formations of nation states or, you know, the idea of nationalism that might not be a negative one. Um, yeah, no, and I think that's an important point. You know, in today's discourse, it's often if you're nationalist, you're bad. Right. I think that uh, the left has also bought into this. And right. so, so you look back and they say, well, cosmopolitan, that's good. I think they totally forget the the, the Pan-Asianist tradition was not part of, there wasn't that, not, neither was the third worldist, uh, and neither was Jiang, even though Jiang has this critique of the nation, right? He says that the, the nation is ultimately illusory, but in that same essay, he says, if you're an anti-imperialist nation, nation is extremely important. You can't get rid of the nation state there. But, you know, if you're an imperialist nation, well, then that's another story. So, the possibility of the nation state being something more than just something negative, right? right. Um, and, and that it could be um, a step on the way to something different, right? Because the whole point of third worldism is that nationalism was connected to socialism. Anti-imperialist nationalism was connected to socialism. And so I think that that, I think, is also something that Jiang is uh, kind of a harbinger for. I mean, he begins that. And then Takeuchi Yoshimi really develops that later. The question is not of negating the nation and then being cosmopolitan. Uh, I mean, the whole, and, and this is interesting because there is, you know, Kotok Shusui, uh, an anarchist who um, Jiang was um, discussing with, or, or, or they were both part of that socialist study group that, where he presented this whole, uh, the, the essay on the state. Um, he was very much saying, you know, we, we've got to, and he's, one, he's actually one of the people who wrote the first text on imperialism. So I think it's, it's before both Lenin and Hobson. And he was very much completely anti-nationalist. Jiang is going against that, although he doesn't mention uh, Kotok Shusui uh, directly. 
uh, later on in the 60s, um, 50s or 60s, there's a Japanese Marxist named uh, Ishimoda Sho, who writes a really nice essay on this, where he really says, you know, you've got to distinguish between uh, the nationalists that are anti-imperialists and, and or, or even a nationalist informed by Marxism and so on, and uh, Kotok Shusui, and he's not able to make that distinction, perhaps because he's in Japan and he's not, by, by the time he's writing, Japan is not really facing imperialism in the same way as the, as the Chinese. It's really fascinating to make the imperialist versus anti-imperialist idea like a nation that is imperialist versus a nation that's, you know, I guess, minding its own business, right? Yeah, you know, no, and I think, yeah, and I think it, the, the distinction probably has to go deeper than right, that because right, sure. the, the thing is, you know, there's the whole problem is something that Moish Postone mentioned, uh, the, the Marxist thinker, that, you know, anti-imperialism doesn't isn't really a politics hmm. right so that if you just say i'm anti-imperialist it doesn't tell you anything about what you're actually doing so so it's the same with the nation if you just say you're an anti-imperialist nation it doesn't tell you how bad your nation is in, internally right? right right um so i think that the distinction has to be fleshed out in more concrete terms in terms of like what the nation is doing and and where it, where it's going right and right. and this is why i think jong and others they they in different ways, they try to spell out, well, what should a nation actually do? Right. Right? What should a right. state actually do? Right. That was Marti's, I think, goal generally as well, is to try to understand how you make institutions to serve the right kind of nation. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Uh, the idea uh, that Asia is anti-imperialist um, doesn't obviously mean it's a perfect place to be. It means it's trying to not be taken over as a colony by the uh, imperial nations, which at the time uh, obviously uh, would be the U.S. Uh, yes. To be anti-imperialist is just not to be dominated by uh, the U.S. So everyone would be Asia except the U.S. <laughs> in that definition, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, the Euro-American bloc, right? And I, and I think this is this has plagued the concept of Asia from the very beginning, right. I think. You know, Japan has been a major center for this, I mean, because for this debate, because already from the very beginning, one of the first Pan-Asianists um, would be Okakura Tenshin, right? Who goes to, goes to India and so on. He's, he's sort of a writer and art historian, and he has this whole idea of Asia is one. But then on the other side, and that's Fukuzawa Yukichi, right? Who has a famous... I think it's 1885, he writes a very famous essay called Leaving Asia, right? That is where he's trying to say, well, Japan has got to leave Asia, right? And so that's where it's got to, it's got to become, where once it modernizes, it becomes more like Europe. Right. And so this is where, you know, Asia becomes something that you can go in and out of Asia, right? And this is also there in um, Sun Yat-sen's uh, famous essay in the 19, 1924, I think where he's speaking to a bunch of Kobe merchants in Japan, and he's saying, well, Japan has to really decide what it wants to do. Does it want to take the path of Asia, or does it want to take the path of the Western imperialists? And, you know, there he gives another example, which is very, very interesting, uh, and that is the, the uh, example of Russia. He says that Russia, you know, after the 1917 revolution, it's jumped into Asia. Uh, it could have been Europe, but now it's jumped into Asia. And so we have to really think of it as, you know, sort of a kind of model in that sense, right? So, so this is where Asia can then be connected to, to socialism, you know, so there's really a politics behind this geographical category. And I think that's that I think is what I want to stress. <laughs> 
Let's jump back to Zhang then, because you tie Asia as method to India as method, and then to Zhang as trying to make use of Buddhism in in India or from India to understand China, you know, as a way to be anti-imperialist. So I think India is a key figure in this imaginary, because if you think about India, well, it was colonized. So a lot of reformers, you know, might have pointed to India to say, hey, we've got to look at what we do. Uh, you know, we better modernize, otherwise we're going to end up like India. And this is something that, uh, you know, Fukuzawa Yukichi says too in his, uh, his famous book called An Outline of a Theory of Civilization, which was published in 1875. And he says, if you don't modernize, you're going to end up like India. And so there's a kind of linear way of thinking about India. But I think with Zhang, that changes a, a little bit. I mean, because, you know, he's actually looking at India as a symbol for the struggle against imperialism. Uh, and that's partly when he's, he's doing his Pan-Asian uh, work. Hmm. Well, it is it is a hard thing to get your head around, I suppose. One of the, the things that were, I think, most interesting to me, again, is trying to understand how um, one combats the thinking that begins to invade uh, a country when you start to think about modernizing, think about being like Europe, uh, think about how being successful in that way is a path to follow. A lot of these things are, of course, linked to pro- what we call progress, uh, and, and progress ha- has, as you point out, a kind of linearity to it, right? The idea that you're moving towards this better thing and 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 the philosopher that we point to in this, you do in particular, but that is known for this kind of thinking is Hegel in particular. So can we work our way into that particular conversation where, where Zhang is trying to, I guess, philosophize against Hegel, against the idea of this kind of linear notion? I think Hegel is a really interesting figure here. Uh, and I think um, his impact in East Asia I think, uh, should not be underestimated. Because we often think of him, especially, and this is in in, um, Asian studies, as uh, almost the sort of proverbial bad guy, right? Because he's the person who, you know, if you look at some of his writings about Asia and so on, it's all, or even Africa, especially even Africa, you know, that they seem to be always behind. And we talk about the march of history and so on. And yet, within his work, you also have the resources for a kind of critique of that perspective. I think that uh, someone like Jung is coming at him, at Ed Hegel, from a, from a somewhat unique perspective, or at least a different perspective, um, because we also have to think about the context, right? So he is reading a lot of Hegel in, in Japanese translation, right? He's reading, or, or maybe he's actually, to put it more, be more precise, he's probably reading summaries of Hegel right. in Japanese, right, in right. Japanese, yeah. right? So, so he's getting a certain kind of Hegel, but there's something that immediately strikes him as interesting. And that is because he's reading a lot of Buddhism too, right? He's reading a lot about Buddhism. Of course, he's reading the original texts, but he's also reading about Buddhism in Japanese texts. Hmm. And those Japanese thinkers are often reading Buddhism using German idealism and Hegel. So, so it all comes together in some ways for him, right? Okay. Um, uh, and, and, and the reason for that, and we have to ask, well, why are these two compatible? Well, if you think about the type of Buddhism that, that Jiang is really reading, it's, it's a Buddhism called Yogacara Buddhism. And Yogacara Buddhism in English is often translated as consciousness-only Buddhism. Hmm. So you can immediately see where 
where why idealism could look very interesting for 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 someone who's very interested in, in yogacara buddhism right because the idea of yogacara buddhism is is the way in which you know things that exist are not independent of our activity right. and that's a fundamental hegel hegelian position right i mean from the phenomenology to, to later on that we can't think about the world as as mind independent so now we see now we see that one that one point of very important overlap. Now, from there, there is something he wants to criticize, at least in the way that Hegel is interpreted in, in Japan at the time and, and, and is, uh, is still interpreted. And that, and that is what you pointed out, this idea of a linear kind of history, right? And he uses the idealism in some ways, this idea that, you know, we create things to then go against the idea of, of there being a, a linear dynamic in history. He goes on further to then say, well, yeah, that linear progressive vision of history is actually used to cloak uh, imperialism and so on. That was guest Viren Murthy discussing aspects of his book, The Political Philosophy of Zhang Tian, The Resistance of Consciousness. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB, and it's time for a final break. This is Koyahoga from REM's Life's Rich Pageant. Stay with us for a final selection from the 2021 Producers' Choice Awards, Part 1. Take a picture here. Take a souvenir.
Welcome back. That was R.E.M. with Cuyahoga, which was played during The Poison Makers on liberal modernity about the life and work of Japanese philosopher, politician, and social activist Tanaka Shozo with guest Robert Stoltz, which aired on October 26th. In the segment from this show, we talk about the problem of industrial-scale pollution and the modernizing state, and how Tanaka Shozo discovers that the liberal state cannot, and does not care to, protect individuals freed from feudalism when capitalist industrialism poisons every aspect of natural life, which is to say an individual is not responsible for systemic pollution and cannot correct the harm foisted upon the world by the rapacity and nihilism of capitalists and their bureaucratic functionaries. It's an interesting space of political science fiction, the idea of the autonomous subject, right? The, exactly. Because yeah. it's, not an ex, it's not an existing thing in the first place, right? Even if you imagine the, the autonomous subject has a right to not work in the copper mines or anywhere else. Yes. But as, as everything else has been taken away, what should that subject do other than be subject to that labor? You know, you can't really escape it. You know, and this is interesting too, because in Russia, these same things are happening in, in a lot of ways, right? So, sure. You know, what happens in Japan when, you know, this, this sort of feudal empire falls? Are people forced into this kind of labor space? Yeah, there's not a lot. I mean, you will find examples of people being forced in the sense of driven to or conscripted into doing some of this labor. But they are forced in the way we've been talking about through the mediation of not being able to provide for themselves. And therefore, all they can do, they need to work for someone else in order to provide for themselves. So it's mediated by getting a job. It sounds like very difficult esoteric theory, but it means how are you going to eat today? Instead of having your own farm and being self-sufficient, you go work, get money, and then go buy what you need to eat today. It's really, in that sense, that simple. At its base, what I was saying about the idea that pollution complicates this individualist bias of liberal political theory, all that really says is you can be as free and as liberal in your mind as you want to be, but you still have a body that takes in air, water, and food. And if that air, water, and food is contaminated by someone else's practicing their individuality upstream at the Ashio Copper Mine, there's a problem that is hard to adjudicate using just individual to individual face-to-face relations. Yeah, and understanding it via uh, property rights. Um, exactly. Uh, the interesting thing, uh, too, about the Ashio Copper Mine is the the recognition of its pollution and yet the ways in which it seemed to be a very serious job of trying to not make the pollution responsible for the problems, right? Like the ways in which you know the the, the flooding is the problem, not the pollution. Like the, yes. it's the flood that makes the problem. Otherwise, this this copper wouldn't be a problem. You know, this 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 uh, pollution from this particular process can't be a problem if it weren't for this flooding. So, how are we going to manage flooding? Exactly. Right. Um, yeah. Initially, they did try and do it with property rights and individual ideas in their first anti-pollution, anti-ashio pollution order in 1897. And it didn't work for the reasons we've been talking about. And then there's another massive flood 
1902. And so a new policy is initiated, and it's what you're talking about here. Instead of appealing to the individual owner, or the pro- property right owner of the mine owner, Furukawa Ichibe, and the individual property rights of the farmers, this time the state steps in and takes control of the river system itself, the entire watershed, nationalizes the water, and argues, as you mentioned, that it's not really the mine that's the problem because the copper is stuck in the river banks and the river bed, and it'll stay there and won't hurt anyone unless there's a flood. So this is how it was changed to say, actually flooding, not mining, not industrialization is the real problem. And so the move is on to completely, and I mean completely, re-engineer the entire watershed of the Watarasa and Tony rivers, including as many of their tributaries as possible to make sure that there will be no flooding. And this is the beginning of Japan's kind of now famous, infamous, wholly concrete lined river system, possibly no, no major and very few rivers at all that are free flowing in Japan anywhere. And this is the beginning of that process. Wow. Hardcore engineering projects, concrete banks, high levees, that cannot be overtopped. And I mean, this was a massive project. By the time the Watarase and Tone River areas and the watersheds are re-engineered in the ni- early 1900s, they moved as much earth as the Panama Canal contemporary project in order to do all of this. Yes. And so in this case, nature flooding is seen as the problem and we need to separate ourselves from that as much as possible. In the end, they can't do it. They just create new problems right. by trying to hardcore engineer a nature that will behave, and it doesn't. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Poison Makers and centers on the life and thought of Tanaka Shozo, a radical environmental thinker in early 20th century Japan who criticized the modernizing liberal state for the attempt to tame or negate nature in the built environment. Our guest is Robert Stoltz, author of Bad Water, Nature, Pollution, and Politics in Japan, 1870 to 1950. Talk a little bit about the copper mine too. Uh, So, you know, how how devastating was this uh, as a polluter and how, you know, the problem becomes the owner of the mill rather than, or the mine, rather than the fact of mining itself, you know, the problems with pollution that we, we focus on the, the particular of this one thing, a wounding nature, I suppose, or Mm -hmm. instead of the system that has been built to support these kinds of industrial actions. So is, is the Ashio copper mine kind of a, the first big industrial problem? Yeah, this was an enormous problem in the sense of it was enormously important to the industrializing Japanese state. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts by the state selling off the mine to this new owner, uh, Furukawa Ichibe, in 1877. Mm. And then str- almost a one-to-one relationship As he modernized the extraction process with electricity, with new new technologies, and discovered new veins of copper, you get a direct linear relationship between the amount of pollution in the area. So the problem was, at the time in the 1870s and 1880s, 
The Ashio copper mine and its owner, Furukawa, was a major success story touted throughout Japan as how good we are at modernizing. This is working. Plus, you've got the national security and questions about copper. I mean, copper is a vitally important metal in the 19th century because it is going to run telegraphs. It's what's going to run electricity. And so it's hugely important as a strategic resource. Then it turns out that success itself, for the exact same reasons it was successful, led to, yes, Japan's first major industrial scale pollution incident, which on the protest side was just as big as the success side of the 1870s and 80s, in that it was called maybe the number one or one of two of the greatest social protest or social problem incidents of the entire Meiji period. And this spans from the success part in the 1880s, all the way through the floods of 1896, 1902, all the way through the entire Meiji period. Let's work Tanaka into this now sure. also, because uh, again, I'm sort of fascinated by Western ideas. And and as you mentioned, you know him being uh, involved in a newspaper that published a lot of these uh, translations of these particular texts. But there was one in particular that, that again, was just sort of surprising to me. It was uh, Samuel Smiles' Self-Help right. from 1859. It's funny because literally I just picked it up the other day in one of these little libraries. I'd never heard of it before. We have those little little libraries that are on the street, you know, that people put books in. Uh-huh. Um, but this is a this was a, a book with serious reach, man. Like I was just like, holy smokes, because this book has meaning to to Tanaka, right? It was a Meiji bestseller, oh and gosh, it right. wasn't just a Tanaka. I mean, it was right, an right. enormous phenomenon. Yeah, you're exactly right, and it was part of this sort of optimistic, open ended spirit of the 1870s and a little bit into the 1880s. And we should remember that the popular rights and liberty movement was successful. It was difficult and there was some violence, but it was successful in getting a constitution written and a representative democracy in place by 1890, 1891. Um, what happens later, though, is the same process that was successful for getting a constitution totally failed in solving industrial pollution. But um, back to the Samuel Smiles and mm -hmm. self-help, there were a lot of these that came across. Uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin, was something people read quite a lot about as well. Oh, All the aphorisms and right. time is money and, you know, the rest of it. I almost said clean your room, but that's got a different <laughs> resonance today. It's poor Richard. It's <laughs> exactly. Oh, poor Richard. Um, these were really popular mm -hmm. and they were part of this open moment where the idea was go out and make something of yourself, which actually had its own phrase at the time, which was Rishin Shusei, which was basically saying, literally means stand up and go out into the world, but it means make something of yourself, be a self-starter. And that's where self-help and that entrepreneurial spirit came from. Yeah. Well, this is essential when you've you've removed all of the other things people could do with their lives. Um, so you, Absolutely. you've got to yeah. be an entrepreneur of the self. Abs that's exactly what was going on. And Tanaka was a true believer for the longest time, at least until 1896 and the devastating floods. Right. And that's why I think he's so interesting in that he wasn't just some leftover. He's mostly been written about in the 1970s. There's an English biography of him, and he calls him Japan's first conservationist. Some others call him the last peasant protest. And I don't think either one really worked because of this period where he was a true believer in representative democracy and liberal politics yeah. and tried really hard for a long time 
to solve this new problem of industrial scale pollution with those resources, intellectual and political. Right. And, and they, they failed. And once it failed, that's when he had to come up with a totally new philosophy. And that's when he becomes something much more radical than a first conservationist. Right. He becomes a radical social theorist. That is a social and political philosophy adequate to industrial pollution and modernity. Out of town, my work takes me out of town. I empty villages. I burn their houses down. I set up factories, lay out plantations, and bring prosperity to the poorer nations. Again, that was a clip from one of my favorite shows of 2021, and really an all-time favorite. Long before Rachel Carson and Murray Bookchin exposed the dire consequences of drenching the planet in chemical toxins and revealed that responsibility was always being actively avoided, which logically is an admission of responsibility, Tanaka Shozo had already done such work in the early part of the 20th century and explicitly pointed to the way liberalism elevated the individual in order to hide the abuses of men set on conquering natural systems and controlling life. And that's our show. We'll close with one more from the Art Bears. The song comes pretty close to summing up the critique that all four of these shows expound. This is The Song of Investment Capital Overseas. Another from the 1981 album, The World As It Is Today. Be sure to tune in next week for part two of the 2021 Producers' Choice Awards for Interchange. I'm Doug Storm, and I produced this episode of Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening.